Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. If you're listening to this, this is also a video episode. You can find the link on the main podcast page or go to Mark's Daily Apple on YouTube. Today, we're going to talk about continuous glucose monitoring devices and my experiment with a really awesome company and a really great one uh, called NutriSense. And so today we have Kara Collier and Dan Zavarotny. Dan, go ahead and say your last name because I know I butchered it. No, that was actually really good. Zavarotny. Okay, uh, great. Yep. So, you know, I did this uh, two-week continuous glucose monitoring experience where I put one of these monitors on my arm and the, it was absolutely incredible. And so, I think everybody should do it. I think it's so worthwhile. In fact, I kind of want to do it again. Um, so let's just start off before we get into my experience and, and my thoughts about it and even my thoughts on installation, because Dan had, I was such a baby about putting it on my arm that Dan had to like babysit me. I mean, it was so funny. I'll tell that story in a minute. But but Dan, why don't you go ahead and, and tell us about NutriSense and, and how you got into this this game of this company, because this is really fascinating what you guys are doing. Sure. So I was actually working as a healthcare consultant and I was consulting uh, hospitals at some of the major brands in the US and the world. And my job was to optimize profitability. And the issue I came across was that I noticed that a lot of times profitability hospitals does not correlate with patient outcomes. A lot of times, actually, it was a vice versa relationship where the more money hospital was profitable in, the less likelihood of people coming out healthy was. A um, little fun fact, actually, if people do ever get sick, I always recommend people to look at the CEO of the hospital because if the CEO is a doctor, then the patient outcome is actually much higher versus if it's an accountant or a finance guy uh, because those people have been in the front lines. So they really understand what it means to run an organization and care for the patient. So always tell people that. Um, but as I was in this industry, I realized that, hey, a lot of these diseases, like such as type 2 diabetes, heart disease, uh, Alzheimer's, were a lot of times preventable diseases, as long as you exercise and ate well. But the problem I came across was, what does eating well mean? And that's what doctors usually say. They'd say, hey, you have high blood pressure, you have high cholesterol, you're overweight, eat better and exercise. And you come back a year later, and you're still overweight, or you still have some issues, and the question always became, did you eat better? But what does that mean? And as I ran across these devices called continuous glucose monitors, and I noticed that they're becoming much more prolific and cheaper, I said, hey, there's something here. Uh, because they start giving you some automatic, they give you automatic feedback and it's very personalized to you. So you start seeing patterns about how your body responds to information. However, there really weren't very useful people before because they were really meant for injection of insulin. But if you're a regular person, it was too hard to understand the data. So I partnered with my friend who is a technology entrepreneur uh, and Kara, who is an expert dietitian and has a strong background in entrepreneurship as well as nutrition to create a platform where people can now centralize all their health data and start understanding patterns and behaviors so they can make much more informed decisions. And Kara, what's, your, what's been your experience along this way? Or give us a little bit of an intro of... Uh you know, how, how you've come to be totally jazzed about this kind of, this movement. Yeah. So I'm a registered dietitian and I came from the hospital systems as well. So I came to similar, similar conclusions that Dan did, but in a different route, I was working in ICUs, critical care, nutrition, and seeing patients day in, day out, come in with complications of chronic diseases, not complications of trauma or acute illness, but instead things that could have been prevented. So I became very frustrated with the traditional healthcare system for the, for the purpose of preventing and optimizing health. It's really not what they do well. We need the healthcare system, of course. If we get sick, we have an infection, we want to get that taken care of, but they don't do a great job at addressing the very root cause of disease. And instead, they do a very good job at treating the symptoms and getting you out of there fast. 
So from there, I became very obsessed with this idea of what truly is preventative health and how do we drive that in people? And also how do we increase motivation for them to care about their health? Because maybe you can make a breakthrough with a patient, but if they don't care about the decisions they're making, you can't do anything. So from there, I became obsessed with metabolic health and also came across these devices, continuous glucose monitors, which are used for diabetics, like Dan said, but we were seeing this huge use case for a non-diabetic to prevent getting there. So insulin resistance is really the root of not just diabetes, but all of these conditions. Yes. If we can pinpoint that really early on, then we don't have to end up in the ICU and we can optimize our diet and our lifestyle choices for our personal body early on. And also having that data come at you helps with the behavior change motivation aspect as well. So teamed up yeah. with Dan and our third partner. Yeah, I mean, I think, and you know, the sad news is, is that a lot of hospitals, even their low carb menu, each meal is like hundred grams of carbs. That's yeah. not a low carb menu. So obviously they don't know what they're doing. We got to talk to the people in the know in our industry. A lot of people listening and watching this already know what metabolic dysfunction is and type two diabetes, but it's absolutely preventable. And also I did have prediabetes. I had a 5.7 HbA1c at one point. It is a level of inflammation beyond. And as we know, at the root of every disease is inflammation. So that, and now then let's say I was still 5.7 and God forbid caught COVID. Now I'm kind of in a category of some comorbidities there, even though I didn't look like I had prediabetes and I exercised every day, but there was still even overeating of healthy foods, with, which can be inflammatory. And as I discovered through the continuous glucose monitoring experience, I mean, I'm, I'm well beyond being prediabetic anymore. My HbA1c is way down. But you know, it's very fascinating. Some carbs, some things affect people differently. And that's why it's this such an invaluable experience. I mean, everyone that I've spoken to from Brad Kearns to, you know, Paul Saladino, we're just like, this is amazing. Like I look forward to doing it again. Um, and the fact that it's continuous and you don't have to prick your finger. I mean, no one wants to do that. So if you even wanted to prior to the CGM uh, realm of things, you'd have to go do this. I don't want to, I don't want to do that. And so uh, let me start off by saying, that. So when I was sent the device, it's this like little cup that you, you know, you, you patch on the back of your arm or you know, the fatty part. And there was a needle in that little cup that I was so frightened about. And I, Dan's laughing now because he's like, Al, I'm telling you, it's not going to hurt. You're not going to feel it. That whole needle doesn't go in your arm. It's just a quick second. I was like, I can't, I literally was freaking out. I kept apologizing. <laughs> he was like, you're going to laugh when you realize this hurt, you won't even feel it. So I do want to let people know I am a scaredy cat when it comes to needles. I didn't feel a thing, although it looks daunting, but tell us a little bit first about what goes into my arm? What is it? And what's the mechanism by which it's on there? And then you put a sticker over it that's waterproof and you're, you're there. And then that's on there for 14 days until you yank it off. Dan, tell us a little bit about like that process and what's going in there and, and how it's working. Sure. Before we get so into the needle really is just to penetrate the skin. So you have a small filament that goes in. So you have a small filament, wire filament, that's about three millimeters and that penetrates the skin and it sits in your interstitial fluid. So it doesn't actually touch the blood. Uh, and that's how we're able to tell your glucose in real time. Um, and what's really fascinating about this whole situation is that there's technologies now that are on the market that are getting close to getting approved by FDA where they're going to track not only glucose, but ketones and lactic acid in real time as well. So we're really at the frontier here. Um, give it another decade and you're going to see these things $5 sold and they're going to track everything you can imagine. And that's where really where we're heading. Um, and that's what we're really excited about. because. We're just now starting with glucose, and it's still, you know, the price point's still relatively high, uh, but it's the early days, right? It's like anything else. When cell phones first came out, and then you had some people had cell phones, but very few, and now everyone's got a cell phone. Um, so really, the folks that are listening to this and you are really the people who are just really actively trying to take advantage of their health and understand the new technologies that are coming out, which is exciting. Um, but, and I care can dive a little more into this, um, how this, the mechanism works behind it. Yeah. So like you said, it's super simple. People get scared of that needle, but the needle is just there to put that little microfilament under the skin. And because it goes so shallow, it's just that interstitial fluid. That's why you really don't feel it at all. So it's barely penetrating the skin. 
um, as opposed to, you know, if you have a glucose meter at home or if you're going to get lab, like labs drawn, um, you know, whatever blood values, that hurts way more because you're actually drawing blood. So if anybody is scared of needles and they see that, trust me, it does not hurt, like you said. And then it just stays on there for 14 days. So that filament stays under the skin and there's an adhesive on the device and it stays there for 14 days. So you don't have to do anything else. It's simple. You're not checking your glucose every two hours to see how you might respond to a food. Um, and it's just using this like enzymatic reaction. So it's really simple. And you use your phone to get the data from the device onto your phone. And it's actually, it's actually picking up data. So every 15 minutes, the device picks up data by your blood. So you have 24 hours a day, nonstop data of how your body responds. Which and it is gets so most, important because you can't yeah. prick your finger when you're sleeping. Mm-hmm. No, that's one of the most exciting part when you're sleeping is that what happens when you're sleeping. We've seen a lot of folks who would wake up in the middle of the night and they're always tired and they're not realizing, but their glucose is dropping too low uh, or it's going too high. And they're not, for years, they've been, they have not realized why that was happening. And now all of a sudden they identify that pattern really quickly. And I want to say that the the feedback that you get from you guys on the app and, and as to, because you'll see something spike and you'll be like, oh my God, that's crazy. And then they'll be like, hey, don't worry. It dropped within the first couple hours. As long as it goes back to normal, it's, it's, it's a pattern thing. Um, I, I will say this, because it was two weeks, part of me was like, oh, I'll just live like my best paleo life. And then I kind of was like, well, I have this thing. I want to see. <laughs> it was it was almost like an excuse to carve it. I was like, <laughs> I want to see all the things that I would kind of, you know, if I go off the rails, it's not going to be like with a pie, but it, you know, I might do some like, you know, gluten-free, you know, chips and beans, which I normally don't eat, but that might be something I do every once in a while. And so basically in that two weeks, I had all these things that I wouldn't do. And part, and I got to say, I didn't feel so great at the end of the two weeks. I'll be honest. I mean, you know, it was like a little bit more of the, the carb thing. And then also it was so hot here and it was, it's summer. It was hard to like uh, I was eating late at night and seeing how that affected me really kicked my butt. And I was like, Ooh, I got to rethink my whole eating strategy because I was just eating too late and that was affecting the nighttime glucose. So, you know, Kara, let's talk a little bit about some of the things you notice or some of the classic, you know, ways and the things, you know, and for example, like I ate a ton of watermelon and that only spiked it to like 114, let's say. And then I'd go on a hike an hour later, just a leisurely walk, let's say for three miles and it dropped back down to 85. So you can kind of see how exercise will use up the glucose and get back to normal as well. Um, and then something else, I forgot what really spiked it high. Oh, it was like a wild salmon burrito that didn't even have any beans in it. And I saw it go up to like 160 and I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. Or like a gluten-free muffin or something, or like a grain-free. I mean, any of these things still that have carbs in it or any kind of level of sugar, even if they're paleo can really affect you. But anyway, Kara, tell me some of the things you noticed with me or in general that apply to kind of everybody and how they should be looking at their results. Definitely. So the first thing I'll mention is just what you said of how we all have these really unique glucose responses. So, you know, we want to stick to whole foods, unprocessed foods, but even within that category, we are all going to respond differently. So you may respond really well to watermelon where somebody else might have a huge glucose spike to watermelon. So one of the primary benefits to seeing this data, even if you just do it for two weeks, is to test these different carbohydrate foods that you enjoy to see which ones you respond better to over others. And then you can build a plan that really works for your body. So that's a big one that we're really emphasizing. People try different things and with your cheap foods. So maybe you have three or four foods that, you know, you go to when you want to have, you know, a more satisfying experience and you can see which ones actually work better than others. And then you can make more mindful decisions and you can figure out when to eat that. So we can dive into that a little bit more. Yeah, I want to um, ask I, you about the when, because I, I was fasted in the morning. I went on a, a pretty long hike. And then I came back and I, and I had a, a wild salmon burrito. And it again, it was like not even, there wasn't even rice in it. There, there might have been some beans. There was some cabbage, wild salmon, kind of simple and not huge. And it spiked it crazy. And I was like, oh my God, what happened? And you were like, yeah, because you ate that high carb situation after that fasted workout, right? So, so it was going to be more dramatic of a spike. Am I correct in saying that than it might've been at another time of day had I eaten that? And then that let me go, all right, you know, then that's not the time that I would do that. Correct? 
Yeah. So when you're eating plays this huge role. And a lot of times there's two components to this. The first is we are more carbohydrate sensitive on an empty stomach. And this, the longer you've been fasting, the more this effect will be seen. So, you know, if it's a daily fast, maybe you fast 16 hours of the day and you wake up in the morning, if you have a big carb heavy meal, you might see a much higher glucose response than if it's your second meal of the day, a little bit later on, or if you eat your protein or fat first, and then you have those carbohydrates, there's nothing really slowing down the digestion of that meal. If you're on a totally empty stomach, especially if it's easier to digest carbohydrates, such as like the flour tortilla, or maybe something like juice or something a little bit more processed, it's going to be a quick glucose spike. Um, the other thing that's true is, is the longer you fast. So we see this a lot for people who are doing prolonged fasts and they're doing, you know, three, four day fasts. This puts you in an insulin resistant state because your body is trying to hold on to any glucose present. So if you break that fast with a big carb heavy meal, we see people who have glucose responses go all the way up to like 180, 200 for six hours, 12 hours, sometimes 24 hours. So that almost negates the benefits of what you just did for the fast. And so if we can't carefully break that fast, then I don't even want you to be doing the fast because it's not worth it. And then what's give us the range. It's, it's 70 to 140 is the normal range of fluctuations. So going too yep. far below or too above. Give us, give us a little rundown on that. Yes. So in general, we want to stay between 70 and 140. Um, when we are in a fasted state, we mostly want to stay between 70 and 90 as the optimal range. This fluctuates sometimes, you know, if we're doing exercise or not sleeping well, it might be a little bit higher, but most of the time 70 to 90. And then when you're eating a meal, we want to stay below 140 most of the time. And we also want to look at what that shape of that glucose response looks like when you're eating, which is really hard to catch on a glucose meter. If you're only checking it two hours, you only know start and end. You don't know what that shape looks like. So we want to see, you know, a spike, but not too high, but then also a quick return to normal, which is showing us you're insulin sensitive. You know, maybe glucose went up because you had carbs. That's okay. That's normal. But you released an appropriate amount of insulin and your cells are sensitive to the, that signal and they brought glucose back down appropriately. You didn't see a big dip in glucose, which might be reactive hypoglycemia. And you didn't see like a prolonged glucose response, which might mean insulin insensitivity. So we're looking for all these different nuances, but in general, 70 to 140 is that lower upper threshold. And then I also noticed, uh, so uh, I'm also an actor and I had an audition and they're online now, but I was adrenaline up for Mm -hmm. this. And it wasn't even like, it was good nerves, you know, I wasn't afraid because I'm, you know, old hat, this is old hat for me, but still you get like, you know, you're jazzed up like before performance. And I noticed, you know, and it wasn't about food, it spiked. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about some of the factors that we wouldn't consider stress exercise, which is a stress. So tell us, because I know that it can raise and, you know, if you're weightlifting, doing hit workouts, give us a rundown on that. Definitely. So for stress, um, psychological stress specifically can raise our glucose values. So you may see an acute stress response, which is completely normal, healthy response. So in that moment, when you're feeling a little bit of an adrenaline rush, you are having cortisol increase a little bit, which is then increasing our glucose production. So basically the liver is either sending signals to make more glucose or break down our glycogen stores so that we have extra energy available to deal with the stressor at hand. You know, whether that is a positive stress, such as an audition, a little bit of nerves or excitement, or a negative stress, such as a stressful email from a boss or a fight with your partner, all of these are responded to in the same way. It's an increase in glucose and a reduction in insulin sensitivity, so that glucose stays present for the body. And is it it's always cortisol-induced glucose response, correct, in those moments? Yes. Cortisol and adrenaline can both have the same exact process. And I just want to then budge in and say, you know, to everyone out there, and this is what we talk about, like not being in a constant state of fight or flight, right? Mm-hmm. So this is why it's important when, even if you're driving in the car and someone cuts you off and you have that heart drop in your stomach moment and you're, you know, like, and you want to just curse everybody, that that's the moment to really breathe and understand what's happening because cortisol is surging and you need to breathe it down and take it down with your mind so that it doesn't continue on for another 50 minutes or you call mm-hmm. five friends, this son of a bee, you know, this. <laughs> I mean, but this is real stuff, right? So this is why we do this because 
we can see that stress response. I mean, it's not a, it's not necessarily a healthy one when it's constant or you're, you're getting triggered constantly and you're in a reactive state. Um, so that's really, really, really interesting too, or watching something very stressful. Like I remember one time, I don't know if you guys ever seen that movie, was it called flight with Denzel Washington where they land that plane yeah. and Oh my man, during the, the plane landing scene where they like turn up, I mean, I had a heart rate monitor on it, which shot up to like one thirty or something just during that scene. And I remember being like, breathe, yeah. <laughs> breathe it out. So this is, this is really interesting. And I, uh, I think, I think when you see it, like you said, when you see the proof every 15 minutes and you're looking at everything that you put in your mouth and how it's affecting it, to be honest with you, it kind of scares the shit out of you and in a good yeah. way in a really good way. Even myself who knows these things, it was important to see that. It was important for me to go, damn, half a cup of beans did that. Maybe I'm not going to do that often, or maybe I'm going to find another thing <laughs> that's comparable. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, I know exercise can increase it and also hot weather, right? Or exercising in hot weather. Can you touch on that? Yes. So with exercise, we can either see a glucose spike or we can see a glucose dip. And it really depends on the intensity and type of exercise. So if we're doing HIIT training, if we're doing really heavy strength lifting, then we might see a glucose increase because our current energy in our body is not enough to meet the demands of the exercise. So that's going to stimulate a glycolytic pathway, going to burst a little bit of extra glucose in the system, but the difference between a glucose spike from exercise and food is that we are immediately using that glucose to drive our, our exercise. As opposed to food, we might already be energy overloaded and it's just circulating in the body and then we're pumping out more insulin to try to deal with it. In exercise, a lot of times this glucose uptake from that spike is not even insulin mediated. So we don't even need insulin to uptake that. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. So exercise, glucose spike, not a bad thing, but it can happen. And people who eat zero carbs, low carb, they'll still have this glucose spike because they are able to produce glucose when they need it. Um, so across the board, everyone has this response if they're exercising. Yeah. And I noticed, um, I think I was right. I noticed one. So I like did a workout and it raised, but then afterwards it dropped to like 85, let's say really good. And then I remember one of those days before I went on the carb, uh, fest, uh, that I, that, and then after that meal afterwards, so it was like fasting in the morning workout, it went, it raised a little bit, then nicely dropped back down. And I ate only protein and fat. Mm -hmm. And, uh, actually at that point, I think only protein maybe right after that. Cause I did was like doing weight lifts and stuff and my glucose stayed at like 85. Like it's amazing when you see, you know, that yes, other things spike glucose, but when you're doing protein and fat, I'm not saying no one should ever eat a carb again, but it is so fascinating. And it's almost cause you're like, God, I was so satiated by that protein mm -hmm. and fat in that moment. And it, and it kept me at a, wow, what a healthy place to be versus, just see how you don't really need the carbs or as much of them. And I just thought that that was really interesting. And it, it kind of, I don't know, I felt like, ah, this is really positive. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's fascinating because we've seen, you know, one of the things you said is working out helps with glucose control. We've seen is if you have more muscle, if you're willing to put on more muscle through lifting weights, you're more likely to, to basically be able to take in more carbs. Uh, there's folks that don't want to remove carbs completely. They want to have a lifestyle where they still induce, take some carbs in. So we always encourage those people to do much more heavy weights versus, you know, aerobic activities. And I think you guys mentioned one time when, cause you were like, yep, eating late at night. And then I saw what the glucose was over the night. And when it was not where I would want it to be through the night versus maybe another night, I didn't wake up feeling as rested. I didn't wake up in the middle of the night. And I wasn't all jacked up from sugar and stuff, but it was at a level where I'm like, nah, I think when it was like, you know, in the low 80 all night or whatever, I felt way better when I woke up. I mean, I was able to actually feel the difference between, you know, w looking at the results. And then I think it was too, one of you had told me or whoever was communicating with me was saying, yeah, if you're going to eat late, like this is the reason to go on a walk afterwards too, you know, mm -hmm. to, to kind of drop that down. And that's what I saw that one day with the watermelon. It, it, it was actually in the afternoon and I ate the watermelon. It didn't spike too bad. But then again, I went on like an evening walk and it dropped back down. So again, like giving the reason a body, giving the body a reason to use it and, and use it up. And, and that could just be like a really light chill walk too, that could kind of generate that. Right. Yeah. And I think that's true. And I think one of the things I've discovered is you don't know, we don't know. Uh, and we were talking about stress earlier. And one thing I've noticed is that a lot of us are so stressed all the time that stress is part of our day. We don't even know we're stressed. 
because yeah. we're so accustomed to it. So for us, it seems like it's a normal thing. We just feel always anxious and we don't realize that's a problem. And only when you start wearing a device like this or tracking this data, do you realize, wait a minute, you're saying this is not normal. And then all of a sudden you do tests like, hey, let me do some breathing work or some meditation or some exercise. And your glucose drops and you say, wait, wait a minute, this actually has an impact. And you start realizing what good feels like. Because a lot of people for decades or years will live in this world where they just don't understand what they're supposed to feel like. And they assume this is a norm. And I think, I mean, I think the ultimate that, you know, if we had to like put one umbrella over primal blueprint or primal paleo living or ancestral living, all this stuff, we would say it's about glucose management, adrenal and glucose management and how they're related to each other. It's exactly the same thing with hypothyroidism, et cetera. Um, now I find it, I, I think this is just one of the best experiments anyone can do is are your devices all currently just 14 days or like, what are the various options to choose from if there are any? Sure. So right now, they're 14 days uh, because that's where the technology is currently available from a legal perspective as well as tech perspective. Uh, but over the next couple of years, they're going to become they're going to start lasting longer. Um, as we talked earlier, they're going to also track more information than just glucose. Uh, unfortunately and fortunately, uh, the FDA exists for a reason to you know check to make sure no one's just selling different hardware and software and uh, that you know can make up any information they want about you and just uh, mistreat the user, but at the same time, they also add a lot of barriers to entry. So therefore, things don't go as fast sometimes we'd like them to, to go. Uh, but over time, these devices will last 60, 70 days. There are some devices that are fully implantable that already last six months or 12 months. But as you guys can imagine, not everyone wants a fully implanted device in their arm. So no, that's for the... Man. Nope. And you know what I'll say? <laughs> this, it was very comfortable and I had no issues with it. But after two weeks, you were like, all right, okay, yeah. you know. Uh, let's let's get this thing off. And then when I peeled it off, which didn't hurt at all, I know people be like, "Oh my god!" I mean, I guess you have a lot of hair in that area. I might I might shave it first if I were <laughs> a guy and had hairy arms. But it didn't hurt at all when I was taking it off. But there there was, and probably from water and stuff, like a little ring around it that was just a little like a red, almost like someone gave me a little hickey, a little bit. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and it and again, it just it went away. It was fine. It was no big deal. But I was like, yeah, I don't know if I'd want this sticker on my arm for two yeah. like months or whatever. I mean, I, I, but I, I think the two week is a great snapshot to see how things are affecting you and, and what's happening. And I think the biggest lesson for me was the, what we talked about earlier, which is not eating a carb heavy situation or really mitigating that after a strong workout of any kind or big hike fasting. And then also the, ha huh, the not eating late, which I'm still trying to get under control. Cause man, like you said it to me, you're like summer, it's harder in summer. It's yeah. so much more difficult. You're up later or I'm going on a like walk with a friend after work at 7 p.m. We're done at eight. Now I'm, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and even though I normally go to bed at nine or nine 30, you know, the, so I, that was probably the toughest for me and probably the biggest lesson I learned that I will move forward and actually really get under control because I didn't like the numbers when I, when I did that. And it's interesting but, because, sorry, Carrie, go ahead. Just the, the eating later at night is a universal truth, really. So there we have these personalized responses to food, but almost everybody responds worse to meals when they're eating later at night. Um, so this is just part of our biology. So it's the concept of chrononutrition, where we want to align the outside external environment, such as our eating patterns and our light exposure with our internal environment. So all of our organs and hormones also work on a circadian rhythm. So we are least insulin sensitive in the middle of the night, and we are most insulin sensitive in the middle of the day. So really everyone responds worse to those late night meals, and then it does affect your sleep, like you said. And so when you can connect these data points, though, and you see, wow, I do see that when my glucose is higher while I'm sleeping, because I had that later night meal and I had poor sleep, it does make it more motivating to be able to adjust to that eating window, even though I know it's more difficult in the summer times when it feels earlier than it is because there's still light at 830. But it can make a very meaningful difference in many people's lives, both in their overall glucose values and in their sleep quality. So that's a huge factor. We've seen a lot of people. I also wanted to just share with everyone. Um, so the app is amazing. It's really amazing. It's so user-friendly and you just like tap it, you know, on your thing. And it's really incredible. One time it wouldn't capture, you just got to like retry, tap it again. I never had a, 
like a major problem with it. And um, I just thought it was very user-friendly and you could input your foods. I didn't do like every exact macro. I just wrote in there, like I had this amount of salmon with some of it, just kind of basic. Um, I, yeah, I thought, I thought it was really fascinating. And I mean, I just, I feel like everybody should do it. I feel like everybody, even if you don't have an issue, do it because this is the way to get inflammation and in general, overall health under control. And it's not, it's like one of these things, like one time I, um, well, I've coached several sugar addicts, of course, you know, trying to get, get fat adapted, but you know, one of the things with a few of them is that they knew they felt, and they were afraid that they were because of their sugar addiction, they were headed towards type two diabetes. And it's like, they, then I said, then go get the HbA1c because if you need to see the evidence to kick your butt, then maybe you need to see the evidence. And sometimes that's the truth. People just need to see before they go, Oh my God, I'm killing myself. I'm done. Or we, you know, whatever the scenario is. And so I feel the same way goes here with glucose. And like you said, everyone's different. Some, and if someone spikes with, let's say, um, now I know coach Tara Garrison, my uh, podcasting partner for kick-ass life podcast is, is doing, uh, as we speak, her glucose monitoring experience. And I, it, it's interesting because she had a client who like it spiked with, it, it, it didn't spike with bananas, but it spiked with strawberries. And then that might be also an indication that perhaps you have a food sensitivity to something. If something's not generally like a high carb thing that most people would get spiked with, that might inform you, right? Because bananas are way higher than a, a bunch of strawberries, but somehow for her, man. And so that could correspond with a food sensitivity or something like that. I think I did do some chocolate and it did spike a little higher. I have a cocoa uh, sensitivity that I can't quote feel, but again, those are the things that are behind the seas, perhaps raising glucose or causing some inflammation that you might not even know or feel because you don't have a stuffy nose or a rash or, or some sort of obvious symptom. And so that's why I think this is just really key too, with the certain foods, because you never know. And you might be so shocked, like how can blueberries do this to me? Blueberries are great, but you might want to be like, maybe you need to kick blueberries to the curve now and choose something else. Right. What are some of the things you've noticed or experienced with other other people in doing this? What are some outliers or some interesting ones that you're like, wow, who knew that this did that to Joe or whatever? Yeah, I think, and we talked about this in your data, a unique one is caffeine. So people's responses to coffee and caffeinated beverages of all sorts. We see a wide variety of responses with caffeine. For some people, it's a glucose decrease. For some people, it's completely the same. And for others, it initiates essentially a stress response. So I think you saw a little bit of a glucose increase with caffeine. And so it, it's a total mixed bag of how somebody might respond, but a lot of the population is consuming caffeine. So it's something you might want to know and check a little bit. Um, we also see with the food sensitivities. I had somebody recently who was having a glucose spike every time to macadamia nuts. And we were like, that doesn't seem right. And so he did a food sensitivity test and that was one of his highest responders of he just did not respond well. And he had and that's no- that's fascinating because that's up. fat. That's not, yeah, there's really very little fat. carb in macadamia nuts, very little. So that shouldn't have happened, but what a telling, you know, data point. Yeah, absolutely. So little things like that. And I would even argue, you know, you said you think everyone should do this even if they don't think they have an issue. This is a good way to find out, you know, where those issues might- be and even just with glucose tolerance. So we see a lot of people who have a normal fasting glucose and a normal hemoglobin A1C, which is telling you your average glucose. But then we're seeing, whoa, you have huge glucose spikes or huge glucose dips after your meals, and you're not catching those on any traditional lab markers. So we might be able to quicker and easier identify these early issues before they become problems on traditional lab markers, maybe 10 years from now, we can identify that those yellow flags rather than red flags in that data early on. So, you know, there's statistics that 88% of our population is not metabolically healthy in an optimal way. There's a good chance then that you might not be tolerating certain foods well, or you might have mild insulin resistance. We can do a carb tolerance test through the CGM. You can do 75 grams of glucose at home and we can see what it looks like. You know, how are you tolerating a huge glucose load? Can your body handle that? So we can check these different things to see, are there any issues? Are we missing this on traditional labs? And where do we need to dive in deeper? 
What about, are there scenarios that you've seen with some of the data where it might say to a person, like, maybe you shouldn't be fasting for as long as you are, or can you touch on that? Because, you know, there's a lot of people that are just doing it to do it because they think that IF is what they should be doing. I'm a little bit flexible with it. I do mostly fast, but there are some days where I'm like, you know what? spoonful of coconut oil or olive oil or, you know, half an avocado before I go do something. Cause it feels right. And I feel like I need a little something, but I'm not even hungry, but I just, for my brain, you know what I mean? So, so can we touch on maybe some of, some of those, if those are applicable? Yeah. With fasting, I have noticed discrepancies between men and women. So I haven't noticed a lot of negative effects in the glucose data from fasting in men, but I've certainly seen a mixed bag in women. So typically where I start to see some issues and how I define issues is that if you're in a prolonged period of a fasted time, you know, maybe hour 20 of a daily fast or maybe day two of an extended fast and you're seeing your glucose slowly rise, it should mostly be in that 70 to 90 range with some fluctuations here and there. But if we're seeing a gradual incline in your glucose values, that is a signal that your body is under too much stress. So it's starting to initiate that stress response your body is stimulating cortisol and adrenaline and it's creating more glucose. You're not getting any from food. You're fasted. That glucose is coming from your liver and the body is saying you need extra energy because there's a stressor going on. So we shouldn't see that glucose slowly climb if you're in this longer fasting period. Um, So that is a big red flag that maybe something is going on. And we typically only see that happen with women. That doesn't mean it could never happen with men, but we see the pattern more often in women. And usually it's the more like lean, already healthy women. So women who have a low body fat percentage, they're in a normal weight, they're exercising a lot. They're doing maybe a lot of sauna and cold therapy, and maybe they're doing all these other hormetic stressors. And then we add in a very long fasting window or an extended fast And it's the body's just like, that's too much. I hit my stress threshold. So for many women, a 16-8 fast, um, eating eight hours of the day seems to respond pretty well for most people. It seems to be when we start shortening that even more. If you're you're that category of already healthy, already lean, exercising a lot, it's kind of, it's mixed results of how you might respond. And same goes with the extended fast. And then let's talk about menstruation and how that affects this. Because I remember I did get my period somewhere in here and I wrote that down like, hey, and you responded to something related to that. Can you tell us about how this affects it or how we can look at that as women with that part of our lives that guys can't speak to? You jerks, you have it so easy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and this was has been one of my biggest takeaways too from wearing multiple of these monitors is how much of effect just monthly hormonal fluctuations have on our glucose values. So for most women, we tend to have higher glucose values during the luteal phase. So week three and four, right before getting your period is when we see higher glucose values. And this is usually due to a decreased insulin sensitivity. Um, So estrogen, which is higher during the first phase of our menstrual cycle is an insulin sensitivity hormone. Um, so when it's really low in that second phase, right before you get your period, you're going to have higher glucose values and not respond, respond as well to your normal carbohydrate intake. And we see this effect to various extremes person to person. So somebody might not notice this effect at all. Maybe it's very, very minimal or someone else, they'll see a 20 point higher average glucose value during that week leading up to their period. So some people see a much higher extreme than others, but it's good to know this information and be able to compensate. We can't yeah, so how do, how do you compensate it, right? for that? So, yeah. so is the compensation like, okay, I noticed that, you know, week, week 10 days before my period is, is edging up. Is that the time to be like, let's, let's chill out with the carbs or, you know, not, not have the real starchy ones, just eat like the veggies and stuff. I mean, what, yeah. what for very simple things you can do of just making sure, yeah, you're dialing back the carbohydrates a little bit at that time to not add extra fuel to the fire, right? So if you're already in this insulin insensitive state, we don't want to be adding a bunch of carbohydrates to your body when it's already going to have a higher glucose response. And then doing simple things like mindfulness, making sure your stress is under control, making sure you're sleeping enough, going on those walks. These are all good habits we want to be doing all of the time, 
but particularly important when we're in these types of situations where we can't control our hormones. We can't suddenly, you know, be like estrogen, go higher. So this isn't happening, but we can change how we respond to the situation. And what I normally see is a lot of women who come to me before we put the monitor on and we're talking about their history where they say, you know, I tend to have really bad cravings right before my period. And I just kind of like go off for that week. So just be prepared for that. And I'm like, okay. And then they'll see that. And, and that's unfortunately also the time where we have, where you have more cravings is also the time where we're in this insulin insensitive state. So being able to pair that data creates a little bit better mindfulness around the situation where you know, if two weeks of the month after my period, I'm doing great sticking to my goals, but then for two full weeks of every month, I'm going off the rails because I'm having a lot of cravings and I'm giving into those cravings. And then I'm also having these high glucose responses. You're never going to reach your goals if 50% of the time we're compensating like that. So it helps to have that data to be able to see what can I do the best, you know, deal with this situation. Yeah, like no you would choose over. then like the bacon burger with no bun in that situation uh, to, instead of the donuts, like, mm-hmm. like, like try to mitigate it in some way, get some other kind of, you know, right. Satiating type exactly. of meal that would be of that. It's just it's really fascinating. Okay. What else would you like to add or Dan, do you want to pop in? Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that we, we've seen is a lot of the research on is fasting simply doesn't exist when it comes to women. Oftentimes yeah. it's all said, do intermittent fasting, do prolonged fasting to do to lose weight, to improve glucose control, do all these factors that are we all want. But when you look and you dive into the studies, they're all based on men. Women are completely yep. neglected throughout history of medical science. Uh, and it's mind-blowing that this is happening. Honestly, this is one of the reasons we want to do this. Uh, and a lot of people, we, we work with more women than men, actually, uh, because women are much more complex. Um, and this is where I always find fascinating. Like Kara gets, I'm always jealous of Kara because she's the one who gets to work with all the users and oversee this data. Uh, but she gets to kind of lead the research and science in this field above everyone else. Uh, and a decade from now, you'll see some published research study that says women respond this way. Um, but it's, you know, in some way it's sad. It's really sad that the world does not recognize us more and push us forward more. Well, what's crazy about that is that I think everybody in this world would just agree that women are the ones that are like seeking out. They are the buyers of the health books and all of this stuff for the most part, unless it's bodybuilding stuff, which the guys would be, but for the most part, that's, that's women. So the fact that we've been let out, let out of every conversation and study on this stuff is just crazy because we are the consumers and the ones that are like dragging the men to the, you know, doctor and, you know, we're the ones that are with the kids, right? Like, so it just would make sense that most of these studies would be done on, the health consumers' primary, you know, demographic. Well, yeah, I think, yeah. yeah, they're starting to a little bit, but a lot of times they were excluding women just because we, we have menstrual cycles. So that's another variable they had to control for, and it makes for a more complicated research design and methodology. And so the simpler way is to just study men, but obviously we are not the same people. We have different physiologies. So the same results are not always going to apply to women that were only studied on men. So we really have to pay attention to that and figure out what actually is optimal for us. I, uh, I just want to go back again to, cause again, and I don't know if people are going to have these questions if they, when they buy the device and then they get it with the needle. Okay. The needle is a certain length, but that whole length of that needle doesn't go into your arm, which you had explained to me, Dan, you're like, trust me, that whole thing is not going in there. It just had to be that long based on the trajectory of how it snaps in. So when people see that, and you can watch Tara did a a video on her, well, probably not there anymore, but you know, people have done videos on this. And again, I just want to share with everyone, didn't feel a thing. I hate needles, hate them. I hate finger prick tests. And Dan was sitting there and go, and I said, Dan, I don't know if I could do it for such a baby. I'm like, I don't, how like I don't know. It's like a kid trying to get on a roller coaster. It's like freaking out. And I remember you were like, hey, like if you've ever pricked your finger for a blood test, this is like not even. It's not even close. You won't even feel a thing. I literally, it was like nothing. And then, then I was laughing. And 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 Dan was right. He's like, you are gonna laugh when you are done with this. And you were so sweet to talk me through it. But I just want to share with everyone. 
I'm telling you, it's absolutely painless. You will not feel a thing. And I would not say that. And I have literally no tolerance for needles. And when I go get my blood taken, I'm like closing my eyes. I'm like, count to three. Tell me when it goes in. I mean, I am that awful uh, patient for the phlebotomist. So I could just tell everyone, like, I would do it again tomorrow with no problems now that I've done it and know that. But I just want people to realize that when they get the device, that needle looks long, but that whole thing doesn't go in you. So I just want to clarify that because I know people are going to freak out. I'm sure that's like the biggest freak out people call you with. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, I'll tell you on this topic as we're discussing this, one of the things people sometimes misinterpret is that if someone looks healthy, that they are healthy. Exactly. Um, we've seen a lot of folks who are a little bit overweight and you look at their glucose and they're perfect. However, you have a lot of people who are very athletic. They have, you know, great bodies. They have six packs on these guys. Uh, they're running, you know, we have some athletes who play professional sports and they run 10 miles a day and they burn all their calories off. But then you look at their data and it looks like they're pre-diabetic every time. Uh, and people misinterpret that. It's, it's a very important distinction point. Um, and then the second thing I'll say is we, some of us just, we eat because we enjoy food. And it's important to recognize that you don't want to completely remove all vices. You still want to enjoy life a little bit, but it's sometimes understanding what is less bad for you. Like I love ice cream and unfortunately I can't eliminate it. But I, what I did is actually, when I first started doing this, I went and tested 10 different ice creams and I realized which one was least bad for me. And I still eat ice cream and Kara will tell me don't eat ice cream, but I still do. I just love it. But now I know which one I have the least bad responses. So it's important to understand, you know, no one's ever going to change their life overnight dramatically. It's about small incremental changes that really drive long-term improvements. What I've seen people do is they go on these extremes where they're going to go from never working out, never eating healthy, never doing meditation to all of a sudden they're doing yoga, running, working out. They're, they go extremes, you know, they go straight keto day one. They, they do these extremes and then two months later they fall off and they quit everything. And that's yeah. how people fail. But it's really taking those steps one at a time to improve and figuring out what you're going to concentrate on. Yeah, I well, you know, I make the point that you just made often when I'm being interviewed is that if you see that we have, there's so many athletes that are pre-diabetic, and I guess you know the explanation really is you may be getting away with it on the outside visually, but you're not getting away with it on the backside where you keep tapping on the pancreas because you just had 130 gram shake before you run, and that's why these athletes, if they're still on this old paradigm of carb up, burn it out, carb up. I mean, they, they look great. And so they don't understand, but we're seeing more and more athletes kind of go towards the pre-diabetic if they're on the old paradigm of training. And I mean, this is just, that's why I always say, you know, next time you see a pretty woman and you're like, I wish I had her body. I'm like, let me see her freaking blood work. I don't <laughs> know that I want her body. Like you said, it might be the person that's a little softer over there. That's yeah. way healthier. So Definitely visuals are not the pinnacle of health. We know this because what, like even back in the day, Jane Fonda, all the workout videos. And later she's like, I was bulimic the whole time. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, so someone skinny and fit doesn't mean they're healthy or not inflamed on the back end. And, uh, you know, it was actually Dr. Stephen Gundry, the heart surgeon who said that, you know, oftentimes these tiny little fit older women would bring their older husbands in, you know, above 60 years old. And they'd be like, he needs, he needs help. He's overweight. Da, 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 da. And they take the, and he tests both of them. And oftentimes they were inflamed too. Again, probably on a wrong paradigm of chronic cardio or some old eating paradigm or low fat or who knows what it was, but because they looked the way they looked, they thought that they weren't the one with the problem. So um, yeah, I think this is really advantageous. And then this might really relieve a lot of stress for someone who, who might think they need to lose weight, but they're happy where they're at and they don't want the stress of maybe going further, that they don't need to. That, you know, the, the, where they are is okay. And so um, tell us again, I mean, I will put everything to connect in the show notes. I, I honestly suggest that anyone who wants to improve their health really try this. This is a, a, the, one of the best biohacking, you know, that word, whatever, but one of the best experiments I've ever done. I mean, I actually hope to do it again. I would really like to do it again. And this next time, I don't want to even necessarily try the carb. I'd like to just kind of keep it like how I, you know, normal and, and chill and not all of the carb experiments that I did because I really, <laughs> in the name of science, in the name of science. Um, so I would love to do it again, but you know, everybody out there, man, this is so valuable. This is one of the valuable things you can do. Um, tell us how we can go about it. Where do we find you? Give us the rundown on how people can get started on doing this experiment. Sure. Uh, you can go to Nutrisense.io. That's N-U-T-R-I-S-E-N-S-E.io. 
And all you do is just sign up, fill out a quick health questionnaire, uh, review that data to get you ready, and we just send you devices and you get them within three to five days and you're ready to get started. Uh, it's pretty quick and simple. Yeah, and it's and it's activated with what, like in a few hours? I forget how long Sure, it so you actually activate it and you activate it right away, but it takes uh, the sensor about one hour to start populating data because it's populating your graph, so you need a couple more points. Uh, if you because it's sampling every 15 minutes, so if you right. do only 30 minutes, you only get a line. <laughs> we want a little bit of graph. Yeah, so you got to get like wait a minute. Takes a minute for it all to yeah. just kind of like get going. And then, Kara, do you have anything you'd like to uh, finish up or or leave our audience with on this topic? Yeah, what we always tell everybody is data over dogma. There are some certainly some good rules that everyone can do, such as you know the earlier time restricted eating window or just focusing on whole foods, quality foods, but there is not one optimal diet. We are all unique human beings and we have this unique compilation of genetics and epigenetics, and you really have to discover what works best for you. And that can be liberating and motivating to stick with it. So I'm all about trying different things, but then having data to back it up. And I think this is a great way to really see how your body responds. Yeah, honestly, just amazing company. You guys have formed amazing product. Uh, and again, the user-friendliness of the app and the feedback is just invaluable because I think a lot of people, again, like will get scared, like, oh no. And you're like, nah, it's okay. As long as it dropped, you know, there's, there's variables involved in the spikes that are sometimes a little bit more important than the spike itself. Right. And so I think that it was just so fascinating for me to learn all of this stuff. And, um, I I'm, I'm so grateful to you for the experiment. Thank you so much. Is Dan, is there anything you'd like to leave our audience with? Yeah, just one quick thing. Sometimes, you know, with this whole COVID situation, everyone is always afraid of, you know, last time I read there, 94% of people that die from COVID, according to CDC, actually have comorbidities. Yes. So people are afraid. They're sitting at home and they're afraid to do anything. But unlike, you know, weight loss or any of these other things, improving your flexibility, metabolic flexibility can happen quickly. Yes. Uh, you can start today and it costs you nothing. It costs you free. Go for a walk, reduce your carb intake, reduce the processed fats. These are things that if, within a week, you will see a difference. Um, and Kara's seen this a lot too, but like, you don't have to spend money with us or anyone else. Just, just start. Uh, that's really the key. Get vitamin D, drink a lot of fresh water. Um, and that's really the key to reversing any risk. Uh, I always tell people that, like, and it sounds like such simple things because people say, oh, maybe I'm 100 pounds overweight. It, you know, it took me 20 years to get, gain these 100 pounds. It can take me 10 years to lose those 100 pounds. But that's not the only factor that's important. It's other things such as your glucose control, such as your metabolic flexibility, and just in general overall health. Thank you so much for all that you're doing. I'm so excited about the data you're gathering and what's going to come of it in the future down the road as well. And I look forward to doing another experiment. And again, really, really, really appreciate your time. Of course. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks everyone else. We'll see you next week. Hey, Primal Blueprint listeners, no dairy in your life? No problem. Primal Kitchen has you covered because our no dairy vodka sauce is made with avocado oil and organic cashew butter so you can ditch the dairy and keep the decadent taste you love. Made without gluten, soy, canola oil, or artificial ingredients, this vegan plant-based sauce is paleo certified. Visit us at primalkitchen.com for more real food options from dairy-free Alfredo sauce to tomato basil marinara and a whole host of other delicious products the entire family will love. Hi folks, Mark Sisson here. If you found your way to the primal path and want to help others live primally too, then visit primalhealthcoach.com to learn how you can join our mission to help 100 million people reclaim their health and how you can turn your passion for wellness into a profitable health coaching career that you love. The world needs health coaches. The world needs you. So visit primalhealthcoach.com today to learn more.